Chapter 2. The Christian Philosophy of Knowledge Epistemology, or the philosophy of knowledge, has its representative modern thinker in Descartes. René Descartes, a French mathematician and philosopher, approached the problem of knowledge with a background which included eight years in a Jesuit school, military experience, a knowledge of the Renaissance and the sciences, and extensive travel. Yet in approaching the world philosophically, he acted as though he were in effect a newborn babe or a visitor to this world, i.e., without presuppositions, having no knowledge of anything except himself and under necessity of ascertaining the nature of a strange new world. Is such a procedure philosophically valid? Is it at all possible to ask how we know without having previously presupposed what we know? Descartes began with the presupposition of the autonomous human reason. For him, God and the world were problems, but he himself was not. While the rationalism of Descartes is now out of date, his emphasis on autonomous man is not. Descartes's procedure is still basic. He defined and identified man in terms of himself, without reference to any outside factor being, and then proceeded to define the world and God in terms of autonomous man. In terms of this procedure, Kant and existentialism became inevitable. Autonomous man became the basic principle of definition and identification, and both God and the world were relative to man. The self-contained and sovereign God, together with his eternal decree, became anathema to man. God exists for the neo-Orthodox theologians in terms of the divine human encounter, and they oppose the Orthodox idea of the self-contained and triune God. As Van Til has pointed out, Barth argues that God's transcendence means his freedom to become wholly identical with man and to take man up into complete identification with himself. Existentialism thus identifies God in terms of his relation to man and manifests hostility to the idea of a self-contained ontological trinity. God is thus permitted little or no independent existence and is reduced to an existentialist relationship to autonomous man. Theology is accordingly dialectical, conversational. God speaks and acts, but exhausts himself in his acting and speaking, in his relationship to man. The existentialists can therefore agree that God was in Christ, exhaustively because relationally. How did theology and philosophy enter in so perverse a position? The absurdity of Descartes' starting point gives us a clear indication of this. When Descartes began by asking, how do we know, and answered by declaring his point of origin to be, I think, therefore I am, he had already presupposed what he knew. The Orthodox Christian, who begins with the doctrine of the triune God as taken from the infallible scriptures, is assumed to be prejudiced and ignorant, in that he has already assumed all that supposedly needs proof. But the modern man who begins with his own autonomous nature and establishes his reason as the unprejudiced and valid interpreter of God and the world has in fact assumed far more. If God did indeed create heaven and earth and all things therein, then nothing can have any meaning or interpretation apart from God. Inasmuch as all things came into being by virtue of his sovereign decree, all things have meaning only in terms of his eternal counsel. The only true interpretation of any fact, including man, is in terms therefore of God the Creator and the providential controller.
the Orthodox Christian position, as upheld by consistent Calvinism, is that God is the creator and therefore the interpreter. Therefore, the only possible point of origin or departure is the triune God and the infallible scriptures. If man is the interpreter, as modern philosophy and theology maintain, then all things, including God and the world as well as other men, have their being existentially, not independently, and constitute a relation to and an encounter with the autonomous man. Thus, the Christian theory of knowledge rests on the Christian theory of being, and the non-Christian theory of knowledge rests on a non-Christian theory of being. As Van Til has observed, our theory of knowledge is what it is because our theory of being is what it is. As Christians, we cannot begin speculating about knowledge by itself. We cannot ask how. We know without at the same time asking what we know. Autonomous man assumes that the interpretation of reality in his function without reference to God, and therefore proceeds to compare his ideas with reality. Historically, this process has been worked out in Descartes, Berkeley, and Hume to the conclusion that man never knows reality except by his ideas of reality. The question then arises, is there any valid reason for believing that, as I think so reality is? The Kantian answer is determinative of modern philosophy. Things in themselves can never be known. Our knowledge is confined to phenomena, things as they appear to us, never reaching the thing in itself. The question, is the structure of my thought a correct account of the structure of the world, is dropped as an impossible one. Whitehead declares, we must not slip into the fallacy of assuming that we are comparing a given world with given perceptions of it. The physical world is, in some general sense of the term, a deduced concept. Our problem is, in fact, to fit the world to our perceptions, and not our perceptions to the world. There is in this position a seeming and deceptive humility, which is in actuality a perverse pride. Man's insistence that he has no valid knowledge of reality in itself, his attempts to eliminate causality, order and design while assuming them at every turn, constitute an attempt to resist any interpretation other than that of autonomous man. The Christian must maintain that created being has no meaning in itself, and all attempts to understand it in terms of itself constitutes a rejection of true meaning. Neither can man have meaning in himself, because he too is a creature. Nothing can have meaning in itself or of itself because nothing exists in or of itself. All things were made by him, and nothing has a valid interpretation apart from God and his creative and redemptive purpose. Thus every attempt of man to interpret his world of itself, or to attempt to interpret it in terms of his autonomous mind and its perceptions, is virtually a deliberate rejection of God and his interpretation. When men reject God, they at the same time virtually reject the Creator's and Redeemer's interpretation and purpose for their lives and for all creation. Thus, they cannot understand either themselves or the world they live in, although they use both, often with profligate proficiency. As Van Til has pointed out, if we say that the natural man cannot truly know God, then we must also say that he cannot truly know the flowers of the field. Unless we maintain that the natural man does not know the flowers truly, we cannot logically maintain that he does not know God truly. All knowledge is interrelated. The created world is expressive of the nature of God. If one knows nature truly, one also knows nature's God truly. 
Then, too, the mind of man is a unit. It cannot know one thing truly without knowing all things truly. It will not do to say that the natural man knows nothing of God, though he knows many other things well, nor it is even sufficient to say that the natural man does not know of the existence of God, but does not know anything about the character of God. The existence of God is the existence of the character. An objective revelation of God is given to man, both through the world about him and through his own created nature, upon which God's impress is unmistakable. But this knowledge man seeks to suppress. Instead, in his starting point, method, and conclusion, man takes for granted his own ultimacy, insists on being his own God and interpreter, and as a result misinterprets all things, himself, the flowers of the field, and Almighty God. Both in its existence and its meaning, the whole space-time world is dependent upon God, who created it out of nothing. Its life and meaning are derivative, and as a result the meaning of every fact in the universe must be related to God. It follows, therefore, that to know any fact truly, man must first presuppose the existence of God and his creative and redemptive plan. The facts can be related to laws, because behind facts and laws stands God relating and giving meaning to both his plan for the universe. Both the one and the many, the universals and the particulars, are derivative and dependent upon the triune God, who is the original and ultimate one and many. If we are to have coherence in our experience, there must be a correspondence of our experience to the eternally coherent experience of God. Human knowledge ultimately rests upon the internal coherence within the Godhead. Our knowledge rests upon the ontological trinity as its presupposition. Because man is a creature, his knowledge cannot be exhaustive. But because he is created in God's image, his knowledge is true. For the non-Christian, true knowledge must be comprehensive. Because particulars and universals are ultimate for him, knowledge is true to the extent that it is comprehensive and exhaustive. Moreover, the non-Christian regards the mind of autonomous man as a valid interpreter and as ethically normal. The Christian, on the other hand, rejects the right of man to be an autonomous and ultimate interpreter and holds him to be ethically depraved, so that he willfully suppresses true knowledge. Man's sin is his desire to be his own God, determining on his own authority what is good and evil. He accordingly suppresses the truth concerning God, himself, and the world in order to betray himself in his rebellion. To understand the basic difference of the consistently Christian, the Reformed, doctrine of knowledge, as against that of modern man's unbiased and ostensibly scientifically impartial approach to knowledge, let us examine a statement which seems to promise and deliver so much to Orthodox Christian faith while in actuality undercutting it. In a commendable article in the October 1951 issue of Theology Today, William Halleck Johnson summarized some of the main attacks on the credibility of miracles. Myth and miracle at mid-century points clearly to the unscientific and unscholarly nature of those critics who reduce miracles to myth on no other ground than this. They believe, a priori, that miracles cannot occur. Therefore, they did not occur and all evidence to the contrary is automatically mythological. Philosophical bias, he concludes, has prevented them from listening to competent and unimpeachable testimony. The result is that the mythical has gained steadily and inexorably over the historical.
The skeptical critics, not the Gospels, are the myth-makers, and Johnson finds in their complete and confused failure to draw a credible portrait of a non-miraculous Jesus a strong negative argument for the truth of the Gospel narrative. With this thoughtful statement, Calvinists can heartily agree. Nevertheless, the matter needs to be pursued further to be fully clarified. The fact is obvious that Strauss, Renan, Schweitzer, Lucy, and other critics whom Johnson names to have a basic philosophical bias which reorders their whole judgment and determines what shall be and what shall not be a fact. But this does not erase what is equally obvious, namely, that Johnson and Dodd and other scholars have their own bias, each in his turn predetermining the facts on the basis of certain philosophical presuppositions. Yet each in his own turn claims to be presenting the true, unbiased, impartial, objective, and scientific facts. In this claim lies the inherently subjective nature of their scholarship and their false claim to the objective authority. Man neither is, nor can be objective and impartial. All his thinking is from some fundamental starting point or presupposition which is a priori and is therefore either pure or impure faith. Out of the millions of momentary occurrences, he selects certain data as significant or real because his point of view predetermines that they shall be so. All history writing is selective and philosophical, as witness the very different American history which appears in Bancroft and in Beard. It is in Doyavird and Van Til that we have the decisive analysts of the relationship between faith and fact. Such a point of view seems to the modern mind to lead to pure relativism, because, placing his faith in the reason of autonomous man, he cannot tolerate to have his centrality and authority questioned. Touch not mine anointed, he cries, when man's final autonomy is challenged. Calvinism boldly accepts the relativism of man's thinking. It clearly affirms the failure of reason, intuition, experience, and experimentalism apart from a guiding and valid faith. It declares that the history of epistemology, the theory of knowledge, shows that man is unable to account for even the normal everyday matters of experience by any of the multitude of philosophies he has developed. The only guarantee for the reality of our world and the validity of our consciousness and experience is an unreserved faith in God and His revelation, in the God of Christian Scripture and the authority and finality of the Incarnate Son and of His written Word. In such a faith, Relativism disappears, and the problem of epistemology is answered. The subjectivism of man is offset by the reality of God and of his created world. In creatureliness and rebellion our failure and sin are made both known and limited, and in his triune deity is a guarantee of reality and validity of our created reason. To many moderns, this unreserved faith in God and Scripture involve a surrender of reason. That this has been true of many forms of Roman and Arminian thought is past denying. Likewise, many theological modernists have surrendered reason to the vagaries of experience. True Calvinism, as it comes to maturity in Van Til, insists only on the surrender of reason as God and the restoration of reason as reason in Christ. Autonomous man has given to reason a finality and authority it does not possess. We have given it the right to sit in judgment on God himself and to arraign the Trinity before the bar of reason. The true Calvinist answer to this is that reason is not God and possesses no such authority. Its judgments are based on the tenuous, sinful, and subjective presuppositions of a creature and are neither grounded in being or in truth. 
reason can only establish a connection with being and truth insofar as it rests, not on its own mythical authority, but on God and His Word. The Westminster Confession of Faith properly begins with the chapter on Holy Scripture and asserts, The authority of the Holy Scripture, or of its miracles, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received, because it is the Word of God. What depends on man and his reason or testimony is less than man, and what depends on God is less than God. It is reason and man that depend on God, not God, his word, or his miracles that depend on man or reason. It is significant that the Westminster Confession contains no chapter on man as man, but only on man in relationship to God, through his fall, and as called and redeemed. Man's life and reason can be properly considered by a Christian thinker only in terms of the same relationship. Autonomous man is a myth, and reason as created reason is part of man's relationship as creature to God, his world, and to other men. As such, it has a great and invaluable role. In any other capacity, it is a hindrance and a stumbling block. But one may object, why criticize Johnson? when he is so obviously congenial to the Christian beliefs in miracles, when he defends the miraculous element in the New Testament? Why draw the Christian line so hard and narrow as to leave such men under question? Is not Van Til's Calvinism going too far in the direction of isolation and so refining its standards? The answer is clear-cut. Acceptance of the miraculous is not evidence of Christianity. Many heathen peoples freely and readily give assent to the miraculous in Christianity without being Christians. Many American Indians, for example, are ready to believe in the flood, in the healing miracles, the virgin birth, and the bodily resurrection without for a moment accepting Christianity. Such acceptance is fully in accord with their worldview. Likewise, Aristotle could have accepted these same miracles, redefined as new evidence of the potentiality inherent within the universe, and rejected Christ and the God of the Scriptures emphatically. In actuality, under any of these points of view, the miracles cease to be miracles in any Christian sense. More important, there is no gain in establishing the occurrence of a miracle as an event in history if the God of that miracle is thereby surrendered. Thus, while many Christians are ready to accept any evidence seemingly congenial to and corroborative of the Christian view, whether voiced by Aristotle or Johnson, the consistent Calvinist cannot do so. No miracle is truly established if God is not at the same time established as the presupposition of all thought. More than that, no fact is established unless we first of all begin with God as the Creator, as the basic presupposition of all thought. Johnson clearly saw the philosophical bias of Strauss, Renan, Schweitzer, Lucy, and others, but he erroneously assumed that he himself lacked any, that his thinking was objective and scientific. It is not surprising that each man is in turn satisfied with the validity of his reasoning, because it agrees with his God, himself. If he expresses dissatisfaction with his reasoning, it is because he has failed to realize the potentiality of reason as he recognizes it himself. The naive confidence of philosophy is too often masked from the average reader by an involved and pompous vocabulary, but we need not go back to the older philosophies to find a remarkable self-confidence in philosophers in the objective validity of their logical process. 
For example, Rudolf Carnap, modern logical positivist, who is thoroughly anti-metaphysical, who denies that philosophy's concern is what reality, declaring that metaphysical properties, like lyrical verse, have only an expressive function, but no representative function, can nevertheless say, our doctrine is a logical one and has nothing to do with metaphysical thesis of the reality or unreality of anything whatever. He agrees with Hume that only the proportions of mathematics and empirical science have sense, and that all other propositions are without sense. This, of course, militates against his own propositions, whose validity he nevertheless retains as ladders which one must surmount to see the world rightly, using Wittgenstein's defense as his own. Even in rejecting metaphysics and truth, such men insist on a metaphysical and verifiable validity for their logic. It is amazing how men can modestly dissolve God from their philosophy and still retain their own integrity. But this is no accident of philosophy. The essential issue is between the authority of autonomous man and of the sovereign God. To allow God into the universe, provided that we open the door, is to say that the universe is our universe, and that our categories are decisive in human thinking. We can accept the scriptures as inerrant and infallible on our terms, as satisfactory to our reason, but we have only established ourselves as God and judge thereby, and have given more assent to ourselves than to God. But, if God be God, then the universe and man are his creation, understandable only in terms of himself, and no meaning can be established except in terms of God's given meaning. To accept miracles or scripture on any other ground is in effect to deny their essential meaning and to give them a pagan import. Thus, the consistent Christian position must be this, no God, no knowledge. Since the universe is a created universe, no true knowledge of it is possible except in terms of thinking God's thoughts after him. This the natural man, being inconsistent with himself, does to a measure, using the latter but denying its existence. In his practical reasoning and research, he is semi-Christian. In his theoretical reason, he is insistently the autonomous man. The issue, therefore, is between reason as reason and reason as God. Man's rationality, according to the Christian view, is part of man's relation to God, not a God in itself. But autonomous man, with his laws of contradiction and logic, demands that God must follow his rationality and his laws of logic. In other words, God must think man's thoughts after him. This is the plain import of such ostensibly Christian philosophy. And against all this, Van Til has raised an effective standard.